Ready to add a big dose of positivity and empowered perspective to your day? You've come to the right place. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Here, we tackle everything from imposter syndrome and confidence building to the best advice on how to lead yourself through life pivots, including the ones that knock you flat. For the past three years, I've talked to hundreds of experts about their stories. Here, you'll find their actionable advice and lessons, as well as my own tools that you can put to use in your own life. Stick around. I think you'll find this investment in you well worth it. Hey friend, welcome. This week, we're digging into some key building blocks for developing risk tolerance, problem-solving capability, and agility. Essentially, some of the key attributes of some of the most successful entrepreneurs. My guest is Margot McCall Biznow. Margot set out to understand how some of the most successful and creative entrepreneurs of this generation were raised, essentially looking deep into this idea of nature versus nurture. Was there something different about the way the Wojcicki sisters grew up? Or maybe the founder of Tom Shoes or movie director John Chu. Margot talked to all of them and many others, a really diverse group of men and women who are literally changing the world. Margot's research led her to publish a terrific book entitled Raising an Entrepreneur, 10 Rules for Nurturing Risk-Takers, Problem-Solvers, and Change-Makers. The book was originally released in 2016, but has now been expanded and updated for re-release in the fall of 2021. Now, I've included a link to Margot's author page on Amazon, and you'll be able to pre-order the book this July. She's joining us today to share what she learned through all of this research. Now, by way of background, Margot spent much of her early career in government. She served on the Federal Trade Commission, and before that, she served as chief of staff to President Ronald Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors. It was only after Margot's two sons were essentially grown that she became inspired to understand how we can do a better job of cultivating entrepreneurship in our children as well as in ourselves. Listen, friends, so much of my conversation with Margot today will resonate with you. Whether you are a mom looking to instill these important risk-taking and agility qualities in your kids, or whether you're looking to grow them in yourself, or maybe both, I think you'll find some tremendous takeaways in today's episode. Here's my conversation with Margot McCall Biznow. Margot, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thanks. Good to be here. You've written this fabulous book entitled Raising an Entrepreneur, 10 Rules for Nurturing Risk Takers, Problem Solvers, and Change Makers. Boy, we need more of that. Talk about what originally inspired this book. Um, my older son, Elliot, started Summit, which is Conferences of Young Entrepreneurs. This was in 2008. And I go to all these events and meet all these fabulous young people who had created some incredible company or nonprofit. I was just so curious uh, how they turned out the way they did. And so I asked all of them, like, what made you the way you are? So 
willing to take on risks, so willing to work so hard to achieve your dream. And they all said the same thing to me. They all said, I had a mom who believed in me. I had a mom who told me I could accomplish anything I put my mind to and worked out really hard. And that just gave me the courage to persist. I was so struck by this. And I used to talk about it all the time to my kids. And they said, well, you have to write a book. And I said, I'm not going to write a book. And they said, no, you have to write a book. And I'm not going to write a book. Anyhow, they talked me into writing a book. You are not a career author. No, this, this is it. This literally was just one of those ideas that fell in your lap. Talk a little bit about what you were doing at the time. You'd gone to this conference, but what were what were you doing professionally at the time? Yeah, I mean, I um, I've spent, I mean, I've lived in Washington D.C. I've spent most of my career in the government, mostly doing international economic development. Um, and at in two thousand eight, for like those eight years, two thousand yeah eight to sixteen, I guess I was running, editing, publishing um, a publication for my husband's company called The Scene, which was a daily online report of the goings-on in uh, Washington. So, I, yeah. I, I mean, I've done writing. Uh-huh. You know, I edited the economic report of the president, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I, that kind of thing. But, I mean, I just, I'd never written anything myself longer than, like, a page. It's fair to say this was a pretty big pivot for you. Yeah. Let's talk about as you began to have these conversations. So you have the idea to write a book or, or your children say to you, hey, mom, you really need to write a book. You can't stop talking about this. So so write a book. So you set about to interview the parents, moms in particular, but sometimes dads of these highly successful individuals. Talk about how you started, and then what surprised you as you engaged in these conversations? I mean, actually, how I started it was really funny because I said to my son, I'm just not going to write a book and, you know, have it just sit in my desk and not get published. I just won't write a book unless I have an agent and a book contract, thinking that would shut him up, right? And (laughs) so uh, he introduced me to an agent who showed me how to write a proposal, and I wrote a proposal and it got bought by McGraw-Hill Business. Amazing. And I was so excited, and I started to interview, and I'll answer that part of the question in a minute. And then and I was about halfway through, and the person who had bought it moved to a non-publishing startup, and it got kicked upstairs to her boss. And I sent him what I had so far, and he wrote back and said, there's a lot of great stuff in here, but if you could put all this stuff about moms in one chapter at the end, or better yet, an appendix... So I said, um, I'm actually never going to talk to him again because he doesn't want the book I'm writing and I'm not writing the book he wants. Yeah. So I said to my agent, just get me my rights back. So I got my rights back. I still had to pay the agent the money he would have gotten. Um, and then my agent said, you know, nobody walks away from a book deal these days, so we're done. So at this point, I was pretty much done with the book, and I had exactly what I'd said I never wanted, which is a book and no agent and no publishing deal. So interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's that. So I, I want to back up for a second before you before you continue to tell this part of the story, because that's that's so fascinating. I mean, it's a really hard thing, as you've just articulated, to walk away from your publisher and ultimately your agent. You felt that strongly about your particular approach, the approach that you wanted to, and, and ultimately did take in this book. Why did you feel so strongly about that? Because I wanted to write a book about raising kids, about raising kids who became entrepreneurs. 
I didn't feel qualified to write a book about how to be an entrepreneur. I was not an entrepreneur and I didn't felt, feel I had the skill set to do that. So I just wasn't going to pretend to be somebody I wasn't and write a book that wasn't in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Why do you think they were pushing you in that direction when you had a really clear vision, both of your McGraw Hill business? He's like a 50 year old guy without kids. And it just wasn't his thing. The woman who bought it, like she got it. And this guy just didn't get it. I got another agent and I got a book publishing deal and my book was published. Um, So first, yes, you're correct. I started out just thinking I would interview the moms. and I did like that for about 20. And then I thought, gee, I wonder if I interview the entrepreneurs, if I'll get the same story mm-hmm. or a different story. And I realized I got the same stories, but they were kind of more colorful because the moms, especially the more high profile entrepreneurs were very protective and careful. So mm-hmm. then I just decided I'd interview the entrepreneurs about how they were raised because in a way that's maybe more relevant, what they took from it rather than what the parents thought they were putting into it. Yeah. Well, so then I, so there's about 20 where I interviewed both. And then after that, I just interviewed the entrepreneurs. Yeah, fascinating. And you're talking about some very, very high profile entrepreneurs. And this was to, 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 to sort of set the stage for our listeners. You wrote this book a few years ago, but a number of these people, if not all of them, are still um, highly successful entrepreneurs. And in fact, some of them have actually gone on to other entrepreneurial enterprises, I believe. Um, so maybe give us an example of some of the people that you were talking to. Yeah. Um, and just um, as a side note. Um, yeah. So I wrote the book came out five years ago and I decided recently to update it. So I've added 12 new people and I've gone back to the original 60 and asked them to, you know, what they're make sure I've got it right. What they're doing today. Very few of them are doing exactly the same thing. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. Um Um, many of them have become more famous. Some of them are kind of on hiatus. Some of them are taking time off. Some of them have just moved. I'm happy to give you some examples. Um, But also, I just want to say one thing about you said I interviewed high-profile people. Um, It was really important to me not just to interview the billionaires because those are just white boys. And I wanted to interview a really diverse group Mm -hmm. of people And also, let's face it, like nobody's kid is going to grow up and be Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. It's just not going to happen. But you can be an entrepreneur, which means you can start something. You can have your own company, your own nonprofit, your own cause. You can have a few people working for you and you can have a really good life living your passion. And so it was really important to me to to show the kind of range of entrepreneurs that people can be. And also so... My book is 50% men, 50% women, the entrepreneurs. And I think it's 25, 30% people of color. So I wanted just a hugely diverse um, group of people. I just didn't want, you know, the the billionaires. um, Yeah. Because I just think that's much more relevant to parents. Yeah. Well, and also it's only one measure of success. I mean, it it is a measure that we typically look at if a person is, you know, has has reached the point of making a billion dollars, they would by most estimation be considered successful. But there are other measurements of success. And I think that's at least part of what you're getting at. There are other other ways to, to measure that quality of life is a really big one. Right. Of course. And I mean, and I feel like if you're 
following your passion and, and your and your dreams, whether whether you have three employees or thirty thousand employees, you're happier than if you're in a job that you don't like. Yeah. You ultimately landed on 10 common traits or maybe rules, if you will, for, for parents. Let's dig into some of those and talk about maybe a couple that were the biggest surprises to you. I guess the biggest surprise was that every one of these kids, well, when, when they were kids, had a passion outside of school. Mm. Every single one of them. Um, and I've come to believe that having that passion is what where you're going to it's going to be sort of the driving focus that's going to make you an entrepreneur because if you have a passion that you've chosen that you work really hard at that you get really good at you're going to get confidence you're going to learn risk taking you're going to fix it when it doesn't work you're going to try new ways to make it better uh, you're going to learn resilience you're going to learn um, sort of every trait you need to become entrepreneurial. It doesn't mean you'll become an entrepreneur, but it's just so much more likely that you will than if you're just this kid, you know, grinding away, giving the teacher the answers they want. Because it really shows that that creativity and the ability to to use that age-old term, think outside the box, right, and really expand your thinking. So for me, an entrepreneur is anyone who starts something. It's a for-profit company. It's a nonprofit. It's an artist. It's an activist. So the artists, their passion, that's what they're doing today. You know, John Chu was making movies from fourth grade. Um, Benny Blanco was writing music, you know, from seventh grade or something. So many of the entrepreneurs, the, their passion was something completely different that they're doing absolutely nothing with today. And a huge number of them their passion was sports. Hmm. And um, and this is true for both the men and the women. Absolutely. And it was like, oh, by the way, did you play sports? Oh, yes, I was the national equestrian champion. You know, oh, yes, I played soccer at Cornell. Oh, yes, you know, and on and on and on and on. And I almost wanted to say, like, you had to play sports. But, of course, you don't because some people, their passion was running for student government. And some people, their passion was entering sales competitions and some people, their passion was chess or whatever, you know, something different, but mm -hmm. so many of them, their passion was sports. And actually my older son, his passion was tennis. The place he trained, uh, JTCC outside of uh, mm -hmm. Washington, he was actually the first person they honored, the first alumni they honored. And it was, wasn't for what he did as a tennis player. It's for what he did not as a tennis player. And he said, everything I am today is because of tennis. I wasn't that interested in school. I didn't work that hard. Tennis is where I learned grit and focus and hard work and determination. And the, the guy that runs it, as a consequence now, he tells parents like, yes, your kid will get a tennis scholarship to college, but don't worry that your kid is playing, you know, spending five hours a day, seven days a week playing tennis and that that's not going to help them in life. It will help them in life because it will give them all the skills they need to succeed. And I just think that's such an important message for parents to hear that this thing they're doing, that they think their kids are wasting their time, it's not wasting their time. It's, it's giving them skills and, 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 and abilities that are going to help them get to the next level. One of the things that I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but it's, 
it's sports because it's providing the opportunity to learn to compete, to learn to win and lose. So whether it's sports in terms of athletics, whether it's tennis or track or basketball or something like that, or other types of competitions. Did right. you see that same, that, that really sort of the, the through line was this idea of learning to compete and right. win and lose? Is that Absolutely. Learn to compete, learn to win, learn to lose, learn to regroup when you lose and to figure out a different strategy and to have somebody, not your parents, who's kind of coaching you and saying, I'm not playing you this week. You didn't work hard enough. You know, you have to figure out why you lost and you have to stop blaming anyone but yourself. Such an important message. One of the ideas um, that you talk about that I really love is this idea of showing kids that they're part of something bigger. I would love for you to dig into that a little bit and explain what you mean by that. It actually surprised me how important faith was to so many of these kids. And in many cases, it was organized religion. And in many cases, it wasn't. It was just a sense of faith and a sense of a higher being and a sense that you're here on earth for a purpose that's significantly greater than making money. None of the people I talked to said money was a goal. Hmm. They all wanted to make something that made the world a little better. And some of them, their faith was astounding to me, how like that they consider it one of the most important parts of their being. Really interesting. Um, because adversity, not surprisingly, um, our ability to embrace adversity made this list of the top 10. And we think about the world that we're living in today and the challenges that we and our children are facing. Maybe talk a little bit about that piece, that idea of embracing adversity in the context of what we're dealing with right now. First, let me say that that's something that really surprised me, how, how many of these kids had gone through significant adversity. I think 10% of them lost a parent wow. before they were out of college. I mean, that's huge. I, I barely know anybody who's lost a, lost a parent before they were out of college. Um, others, their parents got divorced. Their parents lost all their money. Their parents lost their jobs. I mean, so many of them, their parents had a significant illness. Um, their parents were really sick, you know, for a, a, a lot of the time they were growing up. They were had a they had a significant illness. They were hurt. They were, you know, mm -hmm. had issues. And you know, they say it's not like what happens to you, but it's how you deal with it. And as you say, like now with the pandemic and so much stress going on in so many people's lives, I just think it's so important this whole concept of of resilience and bouncing back and having it make you stronger. Maybe talk a little bit about the concept of confidence building, it's a big one on this podcast, and we talk about it a lot. And while my audience, um, which I'm very, always very, very grateful for, is made up of largely women, we get a few men who listen, but largely women, confidence is a big one. And learning how to not only build confidence and understand where it comes from, but also to boost it when it, uh, when it can sort, when you can sort of run low of your confidence. Talk a little bit about what you learned related to confidence. And I, I realize that this is not necessarily gender specific, even though, you know, as I said before, we are talking, talking to women primarily about women. 
But maybe talk a little bit about what you learned related to confidence. It's back to what we were talking about before about learning to compete, which is part of it. I think if you learn to compete and you get really, really good at something that you've chosen, you develop confidence because you know you're really good at it. And I think the other part of that is having your parents appreciate how good you are at that and not be haranguing you for not being as good at something else. Hmm. So neither of our kids were fantastic students. My husband and I are both, we were both very academic. Uh, I mean, he was Phi Beta Kappa at Stanford and blah, 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 you know, and my dad was a professor. I mean, I, I mean, we both grew up just thinking grades were everything. Right. And then we realized we had these two kids that just, that's not what gave them, you know, made their heart sing. That's not what excited them. I mean, they did what they had to do. They turned their homework in. They went to school. My younger son graduated from college. My older son made it through two and a half years. But um, it wasn't the thing that made them happy. Elliot, his joy came from tennis. And Austin, his joy came from writing music. And we let them know how proud we were of them for their success in those areas and how hard they worked in those areas and how their hard work was translating into, into success. And we were just so proud of them. And I think, so part of confidence is knowing you've gotten good. And part of confidence is your parents not saying to you, okay, write music later, get back to your, you know, history or whatever, like, okay, I don't care that you're writing that little movie, you know, make sure you get an A, you know, in all your classes. So it's just letting your kids know how proud you are of the thing that makes them happy. Yeah. It can be so difficult, I think, as a parent to shift into that mode of what your own expectations are or what your own talents are. And when your children veer from that as they most often will more often than not i think children veer you know and and they find their own path which is an amazing thing but as a parent as you're you know kind of learning on the job if you will um how do you how do you do that how do you keep from allowing your own preconceived notions based on your own experience and your own expectations of your kids? How do you keep that from coloring that experience? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, you know, my own personal situation with both of the kids. So as I said, my dad was a professor. I was very academic. I'm sort of embarrassed to say, but I mean, I kind of grew up thinking like either, you know, if your brain worked like mine, then you were smart. If your brain didn't work like mine, you weren't quite as smart, you know, and (laughs) I didn't really appreciate that there were different kinds of brains. And I had my epiphany with my younger son. I think it was exam week, 10th grade. And I walked into the family room and he was playing the piano. And I said, Austin, stop playing the piano and go study. And he said, I'll never forget. I have a new song in my head. I have to play it so I can visualize it so I can write it down when exams are over. And it was like, oh my God, our brains are actually nothing alike. Like I just had this epiphany, like (laughs) I've never had a new song in my head. If I did, I couldn't play it. If I played it, I wouldn't visualize it. If I visualized it, I couldn't write it down. And it's just like, he has a gift. And its brain is nothing like mine. 
And I have to recognize this. I have to recognize it if he comes home with a C in biology. And I have to recognize it when he writes an exquisite song. And it was just like a light bulb going off. Um, and with my older son, Elliot, who told us that, and I told you my dad was a professor. I grew up in university towns. And he announced after two and a half years that he was dropping out of college to work on, with my husband on his new company. And I mean, it, like it never occurred to me that it was a possibility that I'd have a child who didn't finish college. It never crossed my mind. My husband and I both have advanced degrees. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it's like what you did. Right. I was so horrified. And I said, uh, uh, okay, you can take one semester off. And then it was a second and then it was a third. And it turned out a year and a half later, a month before he would have graduated, having spent a year and a half in school, not studying courses he wasn't interested in, but that he was required to take, is when he invite, invited the first 18 people, the first 18 group of young entrepreneurs to go skiing with him in Utah. And it was 2008, it was the spring of 2008, it was the first time these young entrepreneurs had ever gathered together. And that's what led to his starting summit. So if he'd stayed in school another year and a half, you know, and not done this for like three years, the moment would have passed him by. Somebody else would have done it. He wouldn't have been the first. And this whole incredible chapter of his life never would have happened. And I mean, I so I, I learned a lesson like, and I think all parents have to learn this. The world is different from what it was like when we grew up. We grew up, it was all very straightforward. You got good grades in all your subjects. You got into the best college you could. You got good grades in all your subjects. You got into the best graduate school you could. You got a good job. You kept your job. And that was that. And it's just, that's not life anymore. And parents have to understand this. The world is completely different. Right. You don't need to go to college. You don't need to finish college. You, you don't need to be, you know, good in all your subjects. And there's like different opportunities. And if I can just share one story, I was giving a book talk at Summit and a man came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, can I talk to you? He said, my son is in college and he started this little, you know, widget company in his dorm room. And I think it's kind of a stupid idea, but he just announced he's dropping out of college and moving home to work on his widget company. And I'm so upset I haven't talked to him in three weeks. And I called over this guy I knew who I knew had made like a gazillion dollars and I knew he hadn't graduated from college. And I said, Craig, I want you to tell this man, I'm going to give you an example of two kids. You tell me which one you want to hire. Kid number one started a widget company in college, dropped out of school to work on it, worked on it really hard for a year and a half, finally decided it wasn't, you know, going to make it, but he's got all these, you know, interests now and, and, and wants to you know, try to get a job at a bigger company and see what he doesn't know. Kid number two stayed in college, wasn't motivated or inspired by anything in particular, graduated in the middle of the class, but now he's graduated. Which kid do you want to hire? And Craig said, obviously the first kid and the other 150 successful entrepreneurs in this room all would hire that first kid also. And the dad was like, wow, okay, thanks. It's like, it's like a lightning bolt. It really is very crystallizing. Right. One of the moms that you interviewed was Esther Wojcicki. She's an amazing she's person. Amazing. She, she's also written um, a book, I think a little after bit mine. more after oh, yours. Yes. And I, I've read her book as well, which is fantastic. But talk a little bit about her, two of her daughters. She has three daughters. Two of them 
are at two two of Silicon Valley's most innovative companies. One is at 23andMe and the other is at YouTube. One is head of YouTube and one started 23andMe, yes. So talk a little bit about what you learned from Esther. Yeah, she's fabulous. I adore her. And she, by the way, started the country's largest high school journalism program, um, which has like hundreds of kids in it now. And um, she told me that the kids, the first week they come in and she says, okay, for your, you know, this year in high school, you have to start something in journalism. It can be anything you want. It can be a newspaper art, you know, articles about sports. It can be a radio show about theater. It can be, you know, a TV show about politics. I mean, you decide what you're interested in. She said some of these kids, like nobody's ever said anything like that to them before. And they sit there for a week, like kind of paralyzed with indecision before they were like, oh, wow, I, I, I get to decide. She's very empowering. She believes in trusting people to make their decisions. She believes in letting people figure out what they got wrong uh, and, and, and clean it up. And she believes in respect and kindness. And, and it's really interesting because, I mean, I, I interviewed her for my book. And I think she thought, wait a minute, if someone's going to write a book about raising kids, it obviously should be me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Both books are fabulous. <laughs> so she's book, and they're very different because hers yeah. is really her personal experience. Right. But I read it also, of course. And the thing I like about it is we don't disagree with, with either of us on anything. Like we are 100% in alignment on everything. She emphasizes some things more, as I said, hers is the story of her family and her experience as a teacher. And she got California Teacher of the Year. I mean, she's really remarkable. But we basically agree on on everything, letting kids, trusting them, respecting them, teaching them to compete and to and to make their own decisions. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, the fact that many people are not blessed to grow up with parents who have automatically embraced these 10 or many of these 10 principles, and yet they still can go on to amazing success. But maybe talk a little bit about other instances that you've seen, um, you know, in the program that that Esther is running, where she's cultivating students who may or may not have had the blessing of great parents who really believed in them, but maybe having the input of others outside of your you know, parents or your caregivers who provide that kind of support and nurturing and just and, 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 and really belief that you can do something. Maybe talk about those examples as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I say that you have you know, you have to have your moms or your parents support. And most of them did, not all of them. Um, Elizabeth Gore, who's a great entrepreneur, um, it was her grandmother. Erica Ford, it was a teacher. Amanda Judge, it was a stepfather. It just has to be someone somewhere along the way that says, hey, you can do it. And I know if you put your mind to it, you're going to succeed. As you say, a lot of the parents were not initially enthusiastic about their children's choices. Um, John Chu, who's become more famous since I interviewed him. Right. The nicest guy you'll ever meet and did a book uh, event for me when my book first came out. And he's just so great. And I'm so excited for 
I mean, for people who don't know, it's Crazy Rich Asians. And right. he's got uh, the new Lin-Manuel Miranda movie in the Heights coming out, I think in June. He grew up in Palo Alto. His parents were immigrants. And, and they um, had this Chinese restaurant, Chef Chu's. There were five of them, and five kids. And the parents never wanted the kids to work in the restaurant. They were just like, be so grateful you're in the United States where anything is possible. They wanted them to work hard at all their subjects and be good students and go on and become, you know, doctors or lawyers or whatever. And John, from fourth grade on, he was just making movies. That's all he loved. It was his passion. And he's in high school and he was working uh, and his parent, his, he talked his teachers into letting him turn in uh, videos instead of uh, uh, essays often. And so um, just like my son talked to his teachers into letting him submit a song instead of a, an essay. And uh, um, so he was in bed, he was, you know, working on his laptop on a little video and his mom came in and said, put that stuff away and get a good night's sleep so you can study in the morning. This is ridiculous. You're wasting your time. And he burst into tears and he said, this is what I love. You can't make me stop. This is what I want to do for my life. And his mom left and she picked him up the next day at school and she'd gone to the library and she got 10 books on filmmaking. And she said, if you want to do this, be the best. I love that. What an amazing story. That's really, really I, awesome. I know. And, and then, you know, he said like, he went to USC film school and he did this short film, which changed his life because he got an agent from it. And before, shortly before the film, his mom said, so what are you serving? And he's like, huh? And she said, what are you serving? He's like, Ugh. and so his whole family drove down. They went to Costco. They got like champagne and like finger foods. And, you know, his whole family served uh, all the guests at his uh, the presentation of his uh, USC video. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, the, the cultural aspects of some of these experiences too, you know, in some families where it's really, you know, there's a really conservative viewpoint about what your child will do. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in part it's cultural, not necessarily, but it, but it can be, there can be a particular expectation of a, of a child's path. Um, you didn't necessarily find that to be the, that sort of the an overwhelming factor as it related to the people that you talked to. No, not really. I mean, a lot of the parents initially they were sort of horrified, and a lot of the times it's because they didn't understand mm -hmm. um, what their child was doing. But I think most of these parents, when they realized how happy their kids were doing it, they they kind of came along. And I say to people like every every one of these entrepreneurs had generally a parent, usually a mom but somebody who believed in them and everyone says, oh, come on, Margo, every parent believes in their child. And I'm like, no, every parent loves their child. Right. Every parent wants their child to be successful and happy. But most parents believe that their children have to take a certain path to be successful and happy. And sometimes it's a really big gulp. It's like, really, you want to, you want to do that? I mean, another one of my favorite stories is Paige Mykoski, who started Aviator Nation um, her brother Blake started Tom's Shoes. And, um, and you know, Paige did sort of the normal thing and went graduated from college and got a job and, you know, was like on the path she was supposed to be on. And for her birthday, each of her parent, grandparents gave her $100 and she took the $200 and bought a sewing machine. And she said to her mom, I'm quitting my job. I'm moving back to Texas and I'm going to start sewing. I'm going to make clothes. And 
She started Aviator Nation. That's amazing. One of the other things that I think surprised you and I think would surprise some of the, some of our listeners is the fact that the majority, vast majority of these parents worked full time, not just worked full time, but, but had, in many cases, very consuming jobs. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Did, did that piece surprise you? Actually, it, it surprised me a little how many of these parents did work full time. I mean, Esther Wojcicki is a good example. And, you know, but, and all these parents said to me, it's like, you know, by the time our kids got home, we, they figured it out. Um, one of the funniest stories for me is this guy, Michael Skolnick, who became a film producer for 12 years, won a bunch of awards. And now it's something called the SOS Agency. He's a big sort of political activist and very successful. And he had parents who just worked nonstop. And he was 14, and all he wanted to do was theater. And he wrote to like 80 different theater companies. He lived in Westchester outside New York City. He wrote to 80 different theater companies. And Blue Man Group, who's also in my book, um, said, yeah, you can come here and intern with us. And he said to his parents, I have this opportunity to intern. And his parents said, I'm sorry, we're just too busy. We can't drive you back and forth to Manhattan every day. And they had friends with an apartment that they weren't using during the week. And they let him live in it. And he said, I can't say that every kid at 14 should be allowed to live alone in Manhattan. He said, but my parents trusted me and I honored their trust. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Okay. We've talked a lot about, you know, how to think about this from the standpoint of parenting and caregiving. But let's talk about managing ourselves. And for those who are not parents or maybe don't have any plans to become parents. What about advice for adults, maybe young adults who are about to chart their career? What advice do you have for them in terms of some of these skills and ways of thinking about developing these skills? Of learning to teach yourself to be to embrace risk and to embrace that curiosity and to learn better problem solving skills. Like how do you teach yourself if you were somebody who was not raised with a parent or caregiver or a great mentor who helped you see this pathway and really believed in you? If you're not one of those people, what can you do to help give yourself those skills, learn those things? One thing that would be really important would be to be sure you're in a company or in an organization that appreciates that kind of stuff. Like if you're in a company that doesn't, you should probably leave. Uh, you want to be in a company or an organization, a nonprofit, whatever, a school, a library, a, a government agency, wherever you're working, I'm using company as a shorthand, mm -hmm. um, that, that, that wants you to think outside the box, that doesn't punish you for taking thoughtful risks even if they don't on occasion work out, you know, <laughs> I mean, not stupid risks, but thoughtful risks. And I mean, I think it's really important to be a, in a place that values that and, and, and then to find somebody there that, that you trust and admire that, that will give you honest feedback. Yeah. I had um, Beth Comstock who was the yeah, former she's a, she's a yeah, chief marketing officer yeah. at GE yeah, uh, who wrote that great book, Imagine It Forward, and had her on about two years ago on the podcast. And I thought some of her advice was so interesting as it relates to that corporate mindset, 
but specifically related to failure and literally giving her team permission slips to fail, knowing that if they weren't failing, it meant that they weren't challenging themselves in a way that really would pay off with this great innovation. So I thought her approach was such an interesting way of thinking about that, because that's part of what you're talking about, right? Being willing to, to, to ha- and having the, the space that you need and the safety net, I guess, which is what she was providing, so that your, your employees, your people feel comfortable so right. thinking outside the box, right? right? Pushing those boundaries. Right. And this is a whole new way for me to think. As I said, I spent most of my career in the government, and that's not how you think in the government. Nobody ever wants to fail. They want to set their goals low enough that they can succeed. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they never want to, they, there's just no reward for failure. And I've just been so impressed with all these young entrepreneurs because that's just not the way they think. And I just think it's so much healthier um, to have big goals and to know you might not always succeed, but to, you know, I mean, trust me, Elon Musk isn't changing the world because he's setting safe goals, you know? <laughs> right. um, and, uh, and that's the other thing, I mean, I mean, this whole entrepreneurial mindset, which I really want to stress, it's not just about starting a company. It's about taking this mindset wherever you work and thinking big, thinking outside the box, thinking how you can make this organization better or a a new organization within the organization that's better, willing to take on risk, willing to do whatever it takes to make it succeed and willing to, you know, adjust and change and modify and just to move this idea forward and keep, you know, pushing the goalposts. Uh, I I mentioned Elizabeth Gore before. I mean, she worked at the United Nations, not the most entrepreneurial place, but she started this thing called Nothing But Nets for uh, malaria bed nets. You know, so she started this whole program within the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And then she started another program called Girl Up, where they were working with girls in developing countries. So, I mean, those are great things. You know, it's not being an entrepreneur, but it's, it's, it's going to an organization and thinking, what can I do here? to make this better? Is there something in this organization that really excites me that I can just grab onto and, and, and take it to the next level? Yeah. And those examples that you just gave of Elizabeth Gore are so interesting because she was in government in a manner of speaking. Right. And so thinking about the ways in which just because most people don't do it, doesn't mean there aren't opportunities potentially to think beyond what is the traditional or the way that it's always been done, including in more sort of quote unquote conservative areas like government or areas that are a little more resistant to change, a lot more resistant to change, I should say. Or Esther Wojcicki. Right. Staying, you know what, we need to have a high school journalism program. I'm going to start it and I'm going to tell kids they can do any kind of journalism they want. And fighting with the teachers and fighting with the school board and just pushing it and pushing it and pushing it until it's, you know, she's California Teacher of the Year. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about how you have changed and evolved as a result of this work that you've done. 
everyone who who writes a book, and I I say this because I talk to a lot of authors and you know authors that are really diverse. Um, everybody changes in some respect after they've written a book. Their understanding of the concept that they're writing about gets deeper, but it also sometimes can result in other big shifts in your life. Any big changes that have come about as a result of this this book and this work? I started out, I wrote down what I thought like the 10 rules were, and basically nobody followed any of them. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, I mean, my rule was like, you always eat family dinner together uh-huh. every night. People would say like, what time is dinner? And I'd say when the last person walks in the door. Sometimes it's 6 p.m., sometimes it's 8.30 p.m. Like, that's what we did. No. Like there were two out of the 70 families that did that, you know, uh, travel. Like that was my thing. Like we always have to go on like interesting family trips every year, partly just know that there's other ways of doing things and partly because it binds you as a family. Mm-hmm. Half the people, you know, most of the people didn't do family, big family trips. So, you know, I just had no idea if I'd find anything interesting. I mean, what was extraordinary to me was as a, my first book was 60, now it's 70. Um, Half men, half women, completely diverse. I mean, every race, every religion, every socioeconomic background, from one child to seven children, uh, parents who stayed married, parents who were divorced, blended families, step-siblings, adopted siblings, small towns, big cities, born in the U.S., born overseas, immigrant parents, parents who were doctors, parents who didn't graduate from college, I mean, who didn't go to college. I mean, every possible. And what the, the thing that just amazed me and has gotten me so excited about this is they all basically raised their kids the same way. I mean, that's mind-blowing. I, that's mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I say, like, I got in, I started and I was like, oh, what am I going to find? Am I going to find anything? And Yes, it's stunning. It's stunning. And I just added, you know, these 12 new people and same thing. I mean, totally diverse backgrounds, skill sets, you know, everything. And yeah, they were all basically raised the same. And that's so I'm like passionate about this now because I just feel like like that guy who came up to me after that talk at Summit. Like, I just think a lot of parents don't get it. And they're beating their heads against the wall. Their kids are depressed. Their kids are miserable. Their kid, you know, they're spending, you know, $200,000 to send their kid to college that their kids don't want to be there and they're not motivated. And, you know, it's just heartbreaking. And I, I want parents to say, like, there's a different way. And, and one of the moms said, she was a high school guidance counselor, and she said the parents would come in the kids' senior year and she'd say, what are your kids' passions? And the kids and she'd say, gee, I, I don't really know. And she would just think like, okay, deep breath, like try not to say anything back. Like, and no, it's not like you have to have a passion when you're seven. Um, it's not like you have to have a passion when you're 10. But at some point, like I really have come to believe like every child comes out with some gift. And our job as parents is to help them recognize that and to nurture that and to support that and to reward that and to help them develop that to the greatest ability that they can. And yes, it could morph over time. You know, my son doesn't do anything with tennis anymore. I mean, so many of these kids, it was this passion at this age, and then it led to this passion, and then to this passion, and then to this passion. It doesn't matter. 
what what matters is that these kids have a passion and the parents encourage it and the, and the kids are so happy that they're doing something that they love and their parents are proud of them that they're doing something that they love and and that was true with every single one of these parents with some of the parents it was a harder sell than with other parents some of the parents it was a really hard sell but once they kind of got it they were just on board and i just think it's like the most important thing i just want to tell everybody i love that margo thank you so much my pleasure friend thanks so much for joining us i'd love to know what you thought about today's conversation how have you thought about the idea of pursuing your passion and encouraging your children if you have them to do the same how did Margot's findings strike you? Did you have any surprises? I'd really love to know what you thought. I've included a link to Margot's book. And remember, she's publishing an expanded edition this fall, which should be available for pre-order in July of 2021. As always, I'd love to know what you thought about this or any of our She Said, She Said podcast episodes. It's a huge, huge gift to me when you all reach out with your feedback and your perspective and to tell me which parts of these conversations resonated with you. I also love your suggestions for other guests that we should have on She Said, She Said podcast. So be sure to reach out to me. You can contact me via the contact link on the website at she said she said podcast.com you can also contact me via the various social media platforms instagram facebook linkedin i'm laura cox kaplan on all of those so please reach out let me know what you're thinking what's working for you and what questions or problems you're struggling with i'd really really love to hear until next time i hope that you found this little investment in you well worth it take care of yourself i'll see you next week